What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another wonderful episode of Fraternity. I'm your little brother, Danny, and I'm here with my big brother, Sean. Do you read Sutter Kane? Do you read Sutter Kane? <laughs> what? <laughs> How's everybody doing tonight? We're back. We hope uh, these two weeks between episodes aren't too much for you to handle. You know, we know you love us over here at Fraternity, and we love you too. But we're here talking about another great horror flick, a classic, in my opinion, an underrated classic, and I think it's one of me and Sean's favorites. You know, Sean and I have very similar tastes, and I think this movie aligns with those tastes, wouldn't you say, Sean? Most definitely. And why don't we let the audience know what movie we're talking about, Danny? Well, we're talking about... John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. Now, I know this wasn't your first time viewing this movie because we actually watched it together a few years back. But I can't remember, but was that your first time watching it when we watched it together? Yeah, that was my first time watching it. And I think I had just recently heard about the film and it had interests me. And sure enough, you had it, you know, we talk about how you would you have your collection and I would look through it and find something to watch or you'd lay out a couple titles you were feeling that night. But I think I was like, hey, I want to watch this. Let's do it. And we watched it <laughs> right on. You know, we just went quite a few weeks with a lot of great 80s horror, but we're finally stepping into the 90s. We've stepped into the 90s a few times before, but we're back. And I think it's an undeniable fact that the 80s were a hard act to follow when it comes to horror. With that said, I've mentioned before on the show how my reappraisal of 90s horror has been quite glowing. Looking back upon the decade, I think it did a more than admirable job of following up the 80s. And among all of the horror offerings in the 90s, one of the more curious trends was the perpetual release of what I like to call intelligent horror. Intelligent in a way that often left them misunderstood. A lot of the films I'm about to mention are movies that were and are appreciated more now than they were upon their initial release. If you want to look at the early manifestations of these movies, I think Candyman is one that fits the bill. Candyman was always praised and loved, and made for one scary movie, but was it really appreciated as much then as it is now? Especially when you consider the actual amount of layers and depth within that film? I found that while Candyman was appreciated, it was more as a slasher and not as the tragic grim fairy tale that it actually is. Another example I would give would be The Lawnmower Man. I'm trying to cast a wide net in regards to the intelligence these movies offered up, because in The Lawnmower Man, we had just a brilliant performance by Jeff Fahey in a modern-for-the-time tale of virtual reality enhancing a simple man. Not just giving him supreme intelligence, but having him eventually achieve ascension and transcendence, not through the spiritual world, but the digital. Later on in the decade, we would get epic advancements in horror storytelling, 
Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson would bring meta to horror in a very big way with Scream. And a few years later, the Blair Witch Project would single-handedly give rise to the found footage genre. Never mind Cannibal Holocaust or Man Bites Dog. Sure, they did it first, but the Blair Witch Project put found footage storytelling on the map in a very big way. And say what you will about found footage, I'm not a big fan of it myself, but it's definitely a uniquely intelligent storytelling craft with its own unique set of benefits as well as problems. So the question is, how did we get there? And I think if you want to look for the epicenter of the intelligent but maligned horror that wouldn't come to be appreciated until later, you can look no further than 1994. You had movies like Brain Scan, where the plot on the film would be later revealed to be a fabrication in and of itself. And you also had Wes Craven's first real foray into meta-horror with A New Nightmare, where we the viewer are literally watching the product within the movie being created on the screen. A film that takes the horror off the screen and returns it to reality, only to plaster it right back up there on the screen. And is it any surprise that such a unique and invigorating idea performed so poorly? But not if you've been paying any attention. And that brings us to the movie tonight. John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. A movie that melds intelligent characters, meta, fiction crossing over into reality within said fiction, and then you sprinkle in a healthy adoration of H.P. Lovecraft for good measure. And you've just got a fantastic film equally maligned back in the day. You have Sam Neill searching for a book that he is unknowingly the lead fictional character of as we watch the film adaptation of said fictional book quite literally happening. <laughs> yeah, something I've always loved about this film is that it's metafictional on multiple levels you know like you have you know it's meta on horror novels but then also horror movies and then also horror movie adaptations of horror novels so it's multi-layered and it just you know it's so deep and on paper sounds extremely convoluted but it really just works so well yeah it does Something beyond meta that I'm, I want to bring up and discuss with you as we get further into the plot, because the more I thought about it, I'm not sure we've ever really seen anything like this before or after this. But Danny, after watching this, is it any surprise to you that this movie got panned? Oh, no, it, of course not. Anytime, you know, horror tries to go outside of the box i feel like it's just immediately discarded and it's like no what are you doing you know the same people that will criticize the genre for following trends and tropes are the same ones that are giving it shit when it's actually trying to transcend the genre and become something more so yeah it's no surprise to me that this movie was panned and of course like most good films it gets looked at again in 10, 20 years and reanalyzed and 
is thought to be a work of genius that just went unnoticed somehow. You know, it's a tale as old as time, these things. Yeah, I've actually got some pull quotes from some reviews when In the Mouth of Madness <laughs> came out. So give these a listen. Oh, I'd love to hear them. I'm sure uh, the listeners would too. I'm not going to tell you who wrote them because they don't deserve their names mentioned here on Fraternity. But here's, here's, a, here's a classic. One wonders how In the Mouth of Madness might have turned out if the script had contained even just a little more wit and ambition. What? <laughs> what the hell is this person talking about? <laughs> what does that even mean? What more ambition do you want? <laughs> here's another one. The film comes close to doing something interesting, but gets cold feet. Oh, okay. It sounds a little bit like it went over your head, rather. <laughs> and here's just a few. A mishmash, okay? And these are fair, I think. These are more fair than those last two. Confusing. Weird. Hard to follow. Not very involving. <laughs> now... Confusing and weird, I grant you, but for the life of me, I don't know what the hell these people were really talking about. If anything, they do demonstrate that the movie went way over their heads, right? Yeah, or they were just trying to meet their uh, review quota, you know? <laughs> Let me see this horror film and pan it without really thinking about it. <laughs> Look, I was 11 or 12 when I saw this movie. I rented it off the new release wall. So I think it's fair that it went over my head, but <laughs> I wasn't writing reviews for national publications. <laughs> and you know what? This movie is still damn cool, even when it doesn't make a lick of sense to you. Yeah, t totally. There's plenty of uh, gory bits and great special effects for a young Sean to grasp onto, and I'm sure you were digging it when you were 11. <laughs> oh, most definitely. But the fact of the matter, too, is it makes plenty of sense and is even better for it. So with all of that said, why don't we jump right in and make some sense of John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. But before that, just wanted to say you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Fraternity. That's at Fraternity. That's the number one place to keep up to date with everything Fraternity is doing. We announce what we have in store for you, what the next movie is, so if you're curious about anything at all, Twitter is the number one place. You can go over there, interact with us, tweet us, like our tweets, DM us, do all that fancy Twitter stuff, and we would love to interact with you. And we have an email, Fraternity at gmail.com, that's Fraternity at gmail.com. If you have any questions, comments, anything at all, Send an email over there and we'll respond to you. And if you like what you hear, if you like the show, then go over to your podcast listening platform of choice and give Fraternity a review. It doesn't have to be five stars. I'm not going to tell you that. But if you like the show, we'd love to hear why or what you think of it. We also have a buy me a coffee. It's buymeacoffee.com slash fraternity. And you can donate to the show, but more importantly, what we're really doing over there, we have a limited supply of stickers. So if you want to show your love and support, head on over there, get yourself a sticker, 
place it somewhere where everyone can see it and will love you all the more for it. So, Danny, after this rockin' ass intro, we begin towards the... the Sounds like it's about to break into uh, Interstate Man at any moment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've always loved... That's one of my favorite John Carpenter themes, for sure. No, it's great. And I just love the printing press printing out the Sutter Kane novels. It's great. Yeah, it made me think, like, wow, they, like, really printed all these fake books. Wouldn't that be the all, like one of the greatest like horror memorabilia to have? Like one of these Sutter Kane novels, or just even the cover, you know, or the poster. From the looks of it, there's got to be quite a few of those out there, right? Yeah, where'd all those go? That's what I want to know. <laughs> or like, or like the, the the display, you know, with all the novels in there. That'd be awesome. That's what I want. That's. I feel like every horror movie has like. Some piece of memorabilia you would just love to have, you know. And for me, in the mouth of madness, just give me something Sutter Kane related. <laughs> yeah, you know, it also made me think of how you talked about the lore in like Child's Play with the dolls, and you really get that here too with the Sutter Kane phenomenon, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I love when Trent goes to a bookstore at one point, and there's like Sutter Kane tote bags for sale and shit. <laughs> yeah, it's just Sutter Kane pandemonium <laughs> and like Trent is like you know he's got to get these novels for research but he he's trying to be sly about it he doesn't want to be seen getting this horror crap <laughs> he, he sees you <laughs> <laughs> I like I love that little moment with that creepy dude <laughs> oh yeah so we begin towards the end of this story As we see John Trent getting locked up in a mental institution. And after one quick swift to an orderly's testicles, he's thrown in a cell. (laughs) Sorry about the balls. Sorry about the balls. (laughs) (laughs) It was a lucky shot. That's all. Yeah, we're going to be doing our best Sam Neill impressions tonight. So I just want to apologize in advance. We're going to (laughs) try our best. (laughs) It isn't long. Before we get this cool power outage moment. And it's as if the whole of reality just powers down all around John. And then we see this hand outside of Trent's cell. And it begins rapping on the glass on the door. And John looks outside as this shadowy figure appears in the padded cell with him. He turns to face this obscured figure. And we get our first hint at the level of weirdness going on here. As Trent says, this is a rotten way to end it. To which the shadowy figure replies, this is not the end. You haven't read it yet. Sorry, but I'm not going to even try a Jurgen Proch now. (laughs) Impression. I wouldn't wouldn't even know where to begin, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) You thought Sutter Kane was a strange name. Then we get bombarded by a bunch of images of blood splatter, axes, and disfigured man beasts and monsters that we're gonna see through the rest of the movie and a flash of lightning later and david warner is on the scene looking to interview john trent we're given hints that there is some kind of societal collapse happening outside but we aren't really showing anything of it then david warner as dr wren 
finds John Trent in his cell in full-blown paranoid schizophrenic mode. He's drawn crosses all over the padded walls as well as on his clothes and on himself. And Trent has resigned himself to hiding from whatever cataclysmic events are taking place by just staying locked up. But he does agree to share his tale. And we learn that John was a freelance insurance fraud investigator. We get this great scene where he sweats a scam artist. And I really love this bit because it tells us so much about who John Trent is by not telling us anything about him, but showing us how he is. You know what I mean? Yeah, that we definitely get a great reading into how John Trent operates. Afterwards, he goes out to lunch with Robbie, the head of the firm employing his services. And Robbie wants to put him on another assignment regarding a publishing company. And as they discuss the matter, this axe-wielding maniac can be seen outside. But before he gets there, I believe John delivers your favorite line in the movie, doesn't he? <laughs> One of the greatest lines here in the film, you know, is Emma. Uh, is an amateur. <laughs> Speaking of amateurs, Danny, and audience at large, that's what you're getting right here at Fraternity. We're just amateurs, <laughs> Danny. <laughs> We're just amateurs trying to become pros. So this axe-wielding maniac approaches the men, and he smashes his way through a window and into the restaurant. We get some pretty kick-ass music here, too. Yeah, I just love how menacing he looks coming up to that window, and Trent just has no idea. They're just continuing their conversation, <laughs> and he's just staring straight at him. With this axe. The maniac looks down at John and delivers the famous line, Do you read Sutter Kane? Just then we notice the man's deformed eyeballs. He's got dual pupils and irises. Ugh. Striking image, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. The double irises. He goes to lunge at John with the axe, but ends up getting absolutely blown away by two responding officers. And then the next day, Trent visits Arcane Publishing. And the gist is, their cash cow horror writer Sutter Kane has gone missing, and Arcane can't find him or the new book they're owed by him. We also learn that the axe-wielding maniac was Sutter Kane's agent. And the bottom line is, Arcane wants Trent to find Kane and their book, while Trent believes there's some kind of scam going on that he intends to figure out. We then spend a good length of time watching Trent dive into the written world of Sutter Kane. It's a minor lull in the movie, but it does deliver a few solid jump scares that definitely did their <laughs> best to ruin my childhood. <laughs> well, this is the first of two false dream uh, awakening sequences, and I just love the, the makeup on the cop. And when it pulls back and he's sitting next to Trent, it's so good. You want some too, buddy? (laughs) Yeah, I told you in private, my favorite bit of acting is the wake up from the dream within a dream. (laughs) 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 And like I already said, I was 11 or 12 when I first saw this movie. And I will fully admit that there are a few moments or images, I'd say, that were just pure nightmare fuel and this cop jump scare 
is definitely one of them. Eventually, though, Trent discovers that hidden in the cover art of all the books is a map that points to the fictional town of Hobbs End being located somewhere in New Hampshire. He informs Arcane of his discovery, and he tells them he'll travel there to search for Kane. But he questions them if they want him to because he believes this is some kind of scam still. But the boss agrees on the condition that Kane's editor, a woman named Linda Stiles, accompanies him on the journey. So Trent and Stiles head out on their road trip. We get this pretty good discussion on his realist approach to life versus her fantastical musings on the precarious ledge that separates sanity from insanity. I liked their dialogue here. Yeah, I like it too. It's uh, Trent's, you know, kind of a pessimist and doesn't really have faith in people. And that just comes with his line of work. And he's like, you know, the sooner we're off the planet, the better. And Styles is like, oh, well, now you're sounding like Kane. <laughs> you know, just a lot of subtle hints here and there. But then what they're talking about can also be taken at a broader sense when Styles is bringing up how Sanity and insanity can change places if the insane become the majority. Yeah, nice little debate here between these two. And I, I, I enjoy their chemistry. I think it's good. We fucked up the air. We fucked up the water. Why not finish the job and just flush our heads right down the toilet? <laughs> <laughs> Before too long, though, it's time to inject some more nightmare fuel. And I have to admit that this next bit scared the shit out of me as a kid. I absolutely <laughs> hated this sequence. It scarred me because I don't even like it now because of the memories, you know? Really? Uh, I'm a little surprised that this one got to you so bad. Yes, the kid on the bicycle. Ugh, it just... This was the point where when I was really young... And I was watching it at night. I was like, nope, I'm going to pick up in the morning. <laughs> I'm not, I don't even want to look at this shit. Well, yeah, I think there's something about uh, horror that happens on the road and being followed or something like that. That's uh, definitely a primal fear. So I, I, I think I understand. <laughs> yeah, as Styles is driving late at night, we see her pass this kid on a bike. And it's this young male with a worried look on his face. And I even hate the shot of him bathed in red light vanishing in the background with that subtle musical stinger. I don't know, there's just... This section just delivers some real haunting imagery, if you ask me. Because not much later, we see the same bicycle. But now the rider is this creepy old man with this huge white hair. It sort of looks like a cross between the creep in Creepshow 2 and the witch in Pumpkinhead. <laughs> don't you think? <laughs> yeah uh got that crazy uh thin but flowing white hair yeah all i can say is that image just sends shivers down my spine it doesn't have the same effect for you i'm guessing <laughs> mm, it's good it's not my favorite sequence in the film i don't think but yeah i can see why this has uh stuck with you for so long yeah you had the benefit of not seeing that creepy old man when you were 11 <laughs> yeah trust me if i had a younger connection I sh i'm sure it would have gotten to me just as bad as it did you <laughs> well if the look weren't bad enough eventually styles hits this old man on the bike with the car the sudden hit is is still great 
that that one gets me too and it's just like oh shit boom and the way he flies over the hood <laughs> yeah someone getting hit by a car is usually pretty i don't think you can really mess it up but here you know it's got just the perfect sting and yeah he rolls over it so fast <laughs> Another part that really haunts me, too, is when they run over to help him and you hear the child voice come out of him like, I can't get out. He won't let me out. Oh, I hate that shit. But then the cyclist is suddenly on their feet and just riding off. And I yeah, I love that look, that look he gives, you know, that little smirk. (laughs) Right. And things only get weirder for Styles, too. And I love how Trent just sleeps through all of this. First, Styles notices the lines on the road disappear. She looks out the window, and she can literally see nothing until lightning flashes, and we see the car is up in the air, flying above the clouds. Then all of a sudden, they enter a covered wooden bridge, and they rattle along before coming out the other side and finding themselves in Hobbs End. And it's daylight now, Danny. Yeah, Trent's like, I can't believe I slept through the whole night. You're amazing, (laughs) Styles. (laughs) Styles, you found it. (laughs) I love Styles. She's just like, you drive. (laughs) (laughs) Trent and Styles slowly piece together the fact that they're in the so-called fictional town of Hobbs End, and it's in the books and described to every last detail, apparently. And Trent can't shake the feeling that this is some grade A touristy bullshit going on here. And if things weren't weird enough, they eventually find Sutter Kane residing in this really out of place black Byzantine church with golden onions on top of the spires. And we get this great bit where some of the townsfolk confront Kane and he goes all Montgomery Burns on their asses and releases the hounds. <laughs> Johnny boy. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked a little about everything going on in this movie and this is where i wanted to bring up what i noticed that this movie was doing that is so unique we talked about intelligent horror at the beginning of the show you could call this a thinking man's horror film but what i find the most fascinating is we talked a bit about meta and there are plenty of examples of meta films but this is faux meta right yeah totally you know i think the fascinating thing about this film is you can kind of keep peeling the layers back and you know thinking this or that isn't real or it's made up or how deep is it really going but at the same time you could say this entire thing is kind of being played straight couldn't you oh most definitely and like i said like I cannot think of another example of faux meta, which just makes this such a unique experience because we are watching In the Mouth of Madness and the book in the movie is In the Mouth of Madness. And within this story, within this movie, the book In the Mouth of Madness is meta in the sense that Sutter Kane wrote himself and his editor in the book, right? Yeah. So it's really hard to explain, but I guess we're getting into like what we think of the movie and we're definitely on the same page that, yeah, we're watching the film adaptation of In the Mouth of Madness that's based on the book and all that's happening in this film 
has been written by, assumably, by the real Sutter Kane. So, in the story, there's all this meta commentary happening. But really, we're seeing this novel completely played straight. We're almost seeing a, a direct adaptation of what's in this novel, in this film. And, yeah, that's what gets me, is how deep it really goes like it goes around the world to being simple again when you really think about it (laughs) it's really difficult to like put into words and that's yeah that's what i really love about this film is that it's it it's so complex but at the same time it's like completely played straight and you know kind of simple to break down but yeah it's it's a hundred percent unique it's uh yeah, I don't know. I'm at a loss for words, really. <laughs> yeah, it's 100% fictional meta, and the best way I can describe it is we are watching a movie based on a fictional book within this fictional movie. It's a real movie based on a fake book, but the movie is the book. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> it's, it's really fascinating and not the plot of a movie that lacks wit and ambition. And that is why I brought up those shitty reviews. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if you just took time to really think about what is going on in this film and not even what it's trying to say, but what it's trying to portray on the screen, it's really never been done before. And it's really a, a film about, you know, the story of In the Mouth of Madness is about this character of John Trent coming to the realization that he is in a novel and that's where it ends with him realizing he's in a film adaptation but that's also where the book ends you know right it's just fascinating really <laughs> right because there's there's even the idea that Trent existed in the real world and then goes into the fictional world and then comes back out into the real world but it's all the novel <laughs> this entire story has been fiction there has never been a real world or a back and forth it's yeah it's uh and it's such a great way to bring in like this eldritch horror that makes sense (laughs) right you know because it is written uh yeah i don't know we i feel like we could just go on and on talking about how (laughs) great how well written and directed this this film is yeah but you know we're showing our love (laughs) it it really just floors me at the amount of overlooked depth at that time that this movie had. I think a lot more people today understand what's going on here, you know? And what most impresses me is you don't see much else that attempts this. The only thing that comes close would have to be Wes Craven's New Nightmare. And I think it's fascinating that these movies came out months apart and just went completely... Not just meta, but this fictional meta, you know, and that's just operating on a brilliant level any way you slice it, if you ask me. Yeah, totally. It's crazy that they came out so close to each other. And yeah, you really don't get stories like this anymore. Such a rewarding film to think about, you know, you get out what you put in and really thinking about it. So Yeah, those critics, they don't know what they're talking about. We're saying it right now. And that's what really matters. So back at the inn that Trent and Styles are staying at, Trent is having this full-blown meltdown 
on the difference between bullshit and reality. This is not reality. <laughs> it's not reality. You hear that? Reality. <laughs> Styles informs him that he's half right and that sending Sutter Kane away was a publicity stunt, but it never happened. She tells him that they were never supposed to find anything on this wild goose chase, but now they're smack dab in the middle of Hobbs End, seemingly living out a Sutter Kane novel. Trent's had enough, though, and he goes to leave. And one of the things we skipped over was this painting at the inn. It's of a couple standing by a lake, but their positions constantly change. What did you think of this painting? I love when the last time we see the painting, this couple has just turned into two abominations, you know, and it's just like unrecognizable and just these two horrific creatures. They've turned into things that are slithering on the ground and have tendrils. (laughs) (laughs) The unexplainable monsters. (laughs) Yeah. Kane's writing is unexplainable. (laughs) Yeah. It's creepy stuff. And even creepier is the old lady that runs the inn, Mrs. Pickman. This sweet old lady who holds some dark secrets. If the Sutter Kane books are to be believed, that is. <laughs> right. But we quickly see that she does because we see she has her husband stripped and handcuffed to her ankle behind the desk. And at the same time, Styles ends up sneaking past Trent and taking the car to go see Kane. And Trent decides to walk to town and grab beer. And again, if this movie weren't creepy enough, they even cast the dude who played Vigo in Ghostbusters 2 as the one townie who attempts to warn Trent. (laughs) Don't let it get to you, just get out. I can't, that's how he wrote me. (laughs) (laughs) This was done by a five-year-old, my five-year-old, like Johnny. (laughs) (laughs) Even the good guys are creepy in this movie. Another thing we passed over, and one of the things the townie mentions is how this evil has leaked out of the church, and that it took the children first. And as soon as they arrived at Hobbs End, Styles had been seeing a dog being chased by children all around the town. But we really get a good look at these creepy bastards once she arrives outside the church, and boy did they have some hideous makeup on this little girl here, huh? Yeah, I love... The makeup on this little girl. <laughs> You're my mommy. <laughs> you know what today is? Mommy's day. <laughs> oh, that's creepy shit. Th- this little girl would have stayed with my memory if I had seen this as a kid. <laughs> Probably forever. Oh, yeah. She's great. And, you know, another reason I love this movie, especially now, I know this movie came first, but... Man, does it deliver Silent Hill vibes or what? Yeah, totally. It's got the uh, man alone in a small town in middle America. It's got these unexplainable, horrific creatures. It's got, you know, trauma. (laughs) You've got stuff you've got to deal with. (laughs) I can't say enough good things about Silent Hill. It's my favorite video game franchise. Like I said, I know that this movie came first. What it really boils down to is similar influences. But holy shit, does the scene with Styles and Kane look like and read like something straight out of the video game franchise or what? The room he's typing in looks like Otherworld. Yeah, it's, it's really great stuff. I especially like what I call the breathing door. 
It's this giant wooden <laughs> door that's covered in slime. And we can see it pulsating, but it's been barricaded shut with boards and chains. And Kane informs Styles that it has been these indescribable monsters that have been feeding him his stories as they seek to enter reality and rule once more. He then reveals the pages of In the Mouth of Madness to her, and it downloads into her head and causes her to weep blood. It's no City of the Living Dead blood weeping. <laughs> I'll say that no, right now. <laughs> but you know, Not quite as unnerving and hard to look at. They do make up for it, though, with this cool effect when Styles and Kane embrace, and the camera pans behind Kane, revealing this slimy demon entity growing out of his backside. <laughs> this nasty creature and styles is like caressing it like you would the back of the head of your partner <laughs> it's a demon quattro from total recall <laughs> open your mind styles winds up returning to the inn but from this point on in the story she's off her medication but we do get some fantastic and respectable tentacle spectacle. <laughs> Try saying that three times fast. When Trent walks in on Mrs. Pickman transformed into some kind of unspeakable evil, going axe happy on her poor husband. Yeah, she looks like something straight out of the thing. I thought she looked like Grant Grant from Slither. That too, yeah. Oh man. And we see that axe. Axe coming down and going through her husband's arm. Oh. <laughs> this is some kitchen sink horror because it has a lot in common with a lot of movies we previously covered. And more often than not, and most impressive, is it usually predates those films. We even get some tentacle spectacle from Styles before she ends up tossing Trent around. And he. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love he just bursts through that door. <laughs> He also doesn't question that as much as his realist ass probably should, right? <laughs> still still thinks it's all uh, acting and special effects and smoke and mirrors <laughs> at this point. Trent is the ever pessimistic uh, realist, I guess. But hey, yeah, he decides to flee on his own, but not before catching a glimpse of some rubber suit monster in the greenhouse. This thing looks like a <laughs> damn zoonoid. Straight out of the Giver. <laughs> yeah, this thing look, looking like it's doing a little dancing in this greenhouse. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, man, this is some kitchen sink horror going on here at this point. But it all works, you know? It never feels out of place. Oh, most definitely. It's like all the Sutter Kane horror novels are combining into one thing, and it's just like every corner is something different. And Trent has the experience at all. Back on the main drag, the townie played by Vigo winds up blowing his head off with a shotgun right in front of Trent. And that's where he delivered your line, the, I have to, he wrote me this way. And then we get caught in this loop as the mutating, torch-wielding, and axe-toting townies go after Trent. He continuously attempts to escape in the car, but winds up back in the center of town every single time. And basically, he can't escape the parameters of the story. He's caught within the pages of this fictional tale, and it isn't possible to deviate from the script. It's the one bit in the movie that may be a little too on the nose, you know? 
I just think it goes on for too long, you know? I don't need him coming back the third time. Like, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Nobody pulls my strings. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. It, it's a tad bit too long also, for sure. But it's definitely interesting and revealing to the true nature of the horrific tale we're watching. So I get why it's there. Yeah, we're coming up to... Uh... A very important scene between Trent and Kane in a moment. So yeah, we're throwing everything at the at the screen. <laughs> yeah, we do get some great bits with Styles too, though. Like when she eats the keys. What you, when she eats the keys, he's like, "God!" And he just freaks out. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> then we get a bit where she comes on to Trent because she's being written that way. Yeah, we're we're no longer being uh, subtle about who's pulling the strings here and. Everything is as it's been written. <laughs> I do love when she hops out of the car and does her best exorcist spider crawl imitation. We even get to see her riding on the back of the bike with the creepy geezer boy, too. And as if I needed to be reminded, he exists. <laughs> <laughs> you know what else, though? Now that I think about it, Sam Neill spends the majority of this movie smoking cigarettes and punching women. <laughs> Dr. Alan Grant, this is not. And this is definitely... I think Sutter Kane books would be banned today. <laughs> Eventually, in one too many attempts to flee, Trent crashes the car and he wakes up in a confessional booth. And Kane starts speaking from the other side. And he muses about the nature of creation, belief, and reality. He informs Trent of the plan to unleash in the mouth of madness upon the world to allow the old ones, as he puts it, to return to existence. Kane gives Trent the completed manuscript and does his best to inform him that he is a creation of his. And I love the brilliant line he uses when he says, I think, therefore, you are. He tells Trent that his agent tried to kill him because he read about him in the pages he received. And he knew Trent would bring about this madness. And he tried to stop it from happening. So this is where the movie gets confusingly faux meta. Because it would have you believe that, like we said, Trent existed in the real world, went into a Sutter Kane novel, and then he's being unleashed back into the real world. But at the same time, we are watching the movie In the Mouth of Madness, and it's all fiction. It's all the book. <laughs> that's the bottom line this is all the book right there is no returning to the real world or where trent came from you know like kane said you didn't exist until i wrote you yeah and if that weren't weird enough kane literally tears a hole in reality or the book you could say because we can see the torn pages as trent stares into the abyss left by this gaping hole and at the same time, Styles reads from the manuscript and we fake break the fourth wall here as she's reading the action we're seeing on screen. We then get a wild scene of Trent running for his life down this corridor as he's pursued by a bunch of the unspeakable evil ancient ones. And man, I wish we got some better looks at these things. Yeah, but they're supposed to be, you know, unimaginable. So the few glimpses are good <laughs> anymore and I start to be a little too much i think eventually trent wakes up and finds himself back in reality whatever that is and the first person he meets according to you danny 
is Lord Vader himself. Yep. Little Vader here as the paper boy. Good old Hayden Christensen. <laughs> I knew I, I saw it. I was like, that looks like Hayden. And I looked it up. Sure enough, it was him. <laughs> Maybe it's because I'm watching Obi-Wan, but we're not going to talk about that. Oh, no. Master Tret, the unspeakable <laughs> evils are coming. What are we going to do? <laughs> Back in reality, though, Trent does his best to get rid of the manuscript. But it repeatedly finds its way back to him. And after the Hobbs End experience, Trent is losing his grip on reality. We get a great bit on a bus where Sutter Kane appears next to him, and he tells him that he's God now and proves it by turning reality blue. But that ends up being just another nightmare. And of course, we know where Trent ends up. So we learn that Styles doesn't exist, to which Trent assumed she was written out of the book. But we also learn that Trent delivered the manuscript to Arcane months ago, and the book has been on store shelves for almost two months, with a movie due for release shortly. We then see Trent go axe happy on a Kane fan, and we end up back in the padded cell where we started. Dr. Wren concludes his interview and leaves John Trent to his delusions. Later on, unspeakable horrors happen outside of Trent's cell. He emerges from it the next day and wanders out into the world. A world now vacant of monsters and man alike, leaving Trent all by his lonesome. Eventually, he finds his way to a movie theater, fixes himself some popcorn, and sits down to enjoy the movie. He becomes hysterical as he watches In the Mouth of Madness while still in The Mouth of Madness. And that's the end of our movie. So, Danny, give it to us. Your final thoughts on In the Mouth of Madness. Well, I'm sure you can tell by the way we're talking about this film, but I absolutely adore it. It's so unique. There's really nothing like it. It's meta on multiple levels, like I said, with the horror novel horror movie, and then the level about adaptations as a whole. But what I love the most is how you can turn it all around and really call this a simple story, and it's a simple adaptation of this book, In the Mouth of Madness, and we're watching the sad tale of our main character, John Trent, come to the slow, horrible realization that he is nothing more in a written character in a book and his story ends with him realizing this horrible fate and i think that is one of the most horrific thoughts you know what if you realized that your life was all made up and you are sitting in a theater watching it all play out your entire life realizing it was all false it really sticks with you and it stays with you and I can't say enough about how much I really, really adore this movie. It's such a unique experience. And if you haven't seen it, just go watch it. I mean, we spoiled the whole thing. So you shouldn't listen to this podcast unless you watch this film first. Maybe we should have started with that. <laughs> <laughs> this is not reality. Well, Danny. As non-traditional horror tends to go sometimes, 
We don't have anything in the way. Not much of in the kills. way kills. I personally don't have a favorite kill or death. But was there anything you wanted to spotlight here? Um, yeah, there's really not much to pick. And kills are definitely not the highlight of the film or really the subject matter or the focus. But I guess a kill I actually do think about was the kill at the end with Trent murdering that Sutter Kane fan. <laughs> this shouldn't come as a surprise then. <laughs> yeah, it's just great. Just a nice little interaction where it's like, you like the book? I love it. <laughs> this shouldn't come as a surprise then. It's also great imagery too of Trent now acting like the axe murderer from the beginning of the film. So it all comes around and it's a nice full circle kind of thing. Yeah, you gotta love how disheveled he looks at that point, right? <laughs> yeah, great to see peak schizophrenic Sam Neill. Definitely, he does it so well. No stranger to the genre. We love you. We applaud you, Sam. Well, alrighty, man. How about a favorite scene? Well, there's a lot of good scenes in this film, and it would be easy to pick the finale. As we always say, finales are usually when these horror films go guns a-blazing, balls to the walls. But for me, I am a really big fan of the Do You Read Sutter Kane axe murderer at the beginning. That is a great bit. And, you know, I think my favorite scenes tend to be the calm before the storm when things are just starting to heat up. And this scene really captures that as I love the way it's shot. You know, you have Trent and the other guy, I forget his name, having this discussion at this diner. And in the background, we see the axe maniac come out the store and we see all these people running away from him and slowly making his way towards Trent, you know, never breaking that stare. It's just so perfectly tense and such a great sting when he finally does axe that window and hop on the table, delivers that perfect line. Do you read Sutter Kane? It's a, uh, yeah, it's a perfect scene. It's really great and memorable horror. Awesome choice. You know, I, I debated picking that myself, but I find it, it is a little brief, but it is great with the time it has. What about you, though, Sean? What's your favorite scene? I find that I have to tip my hat again to the creepy old geezer on the bike. <laughs> for, scaring, right on. for scaring the shit out of me, or at the very least unnerving me for the better part of 30 years now. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta give it credit for that. Yeah, I also enjoy the entire bit with Styles driving at night and all the surreal things she has to endure while Trent just snores next to her. <laughs> yeah, that's great. With all that said, nothing beats that creepy geezer on the bike. I already said that this was nightmare fuel for me as a kid, but let me expand upon that, which I kind of did. When I was really young, this was a turn the damn lights on moment. <laughs> or what I really said was, if it was at night, this was turn the movie off before this thing ruins my night. And I'll just watch the rest of the movie in the morning. Before I 
don't get any sleep tonight. <laughs> right. It doesn't bother me anymore, but it definitely left a scar. And I'm just unashamed to say that it's one of the extremely few scenes in horror that managed to scare me. And for that and that alone, it has to be my favorite scene because I've mentioned before, I don't get that fear that often. And that's what we all look for in a scary movie. Right on. True fear. Hard to come by in a film. Well, that was In the Mouth of Madness. We love it. It's a great movie. You should go watch it. We could keep talking about it all day and all night, but we'll leave it here. We think we made our point. (laughs) Yeah, I think that about covered it as well as you possibly can. But before we do get out of here, I just want to say our next episode will be Friday, July 1st, and it will be our first cross-promotion weekend. We will be having our first guest who also picked our film. So you have that to look forward to. And I will also be guesting on their show. And that should release the same weekend. So you're going to get us twice. We, we know we're doing bi-weekly now. But you'll get a guest experience on our show next week. Or not next week, but in two weeks. And I will be on another show as well. And we will share all that information with you as soon as we can. So you got a lot to look forward to. There's five Fridays in July, so you will be getting three episodes despite our bi-weekly release schedule now. So it's going to be a fun month and we can't wait to bring it to you. So until next time, keep watching horror. Thank you for listening. And Fraternity is signing out. Thank you. Have a great night, everyone.